1: Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise in Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and today I have an update to a civil trial out of Florida that might just write the last chapter of Bieta Kowalski's life story. And that name might sound familiar to you if you watch the Netflix documentary, Take Care of Maya. That film highlights the health struggles of teenager Maya Kowalski and how a Florida hospital stepped in and removed her from the care of her mother, alleging Bieta suffered from Munchausen by proxy. So, let's get into it. Bieta was a Polish immigrant that moved to America as a young adult. She was driven. Some might even say she was hard-headed, but she was also intelligent and she had high expectations for herself. During high school, she at first struggled with the English language, but she completed her coursework. And then after graduating from high school in the early 1990s, Bieta wasn't finished showing people that she could do difficult things. She enrolled in college, working towards her nursing degree. She secured that degree as well, and then met Jack Kowalski. Now, Jack was older than Bieta by about 13 years, but that didn't stop the relationship from blossoming, and he fell quickly in love with her, and she did with him. Well, they're still in Illinois at this time, and they too began trying to have a family, but their desires for children weren't fulfilled immediately. It took a bit, but then, in 2006, the couple was finally blessed with a daughter they named Maya. Then, two years later, they were blessed with a son they named Kyle. Their family was whole. It was near this time that they relocated to sunny Florida, where they found a beautiful neighborhood and built a beautiful home. They had the dream. Jack was closing out his career as a firefighter. Bietta worked as a registered nurse. And the two children were thriving. They played in the pool. They took piano lessons. They were even learning Polish. That is, until 2015, when Maya's body began to fail, She was having asthma attacks that turned into severe headaches, and then small lesions and bruises started appearing on her arms and legs. Then her feet began to turn inward. And sometimes simple movements like just lifting her arms above her head were too painful to complete. According to the publication, The Cut, the next months were filled with doctor visit after doctor visit. At one point, a provider had evaluated Maya's medical records and realized she had seen over two dozen doctors in her young life. Beata was fastidiously tracking everything, all the appointments. She was keeping records of medications, recommendations, and treatment plans, and Maya's health care eventually led them to Dr. Anthony Kirkpatrick. He's an anesthesiologist in Tampa that specializes in a rare disorder called complex regional pain syndrome. So basically, the doctor believed Maya was experiencing pain that is out of proportion for the severity of the initial injury. So I tried to think of a way that I could explain it to you guys. So this is a very rudimentary way. Maybe you like burn yourself while you're baking cookies. Well, your body over the next few days is going to work at healing that injury. You might have that initial burning pain, then it transforms into that dull throb. Then the healing time frame might bring pain about when you clean the wound or when you accidentally bump it, but then it's eventually relieved and healed and you feel better. Well, with CRPS, the pain doesn't leave and the body begins healing itself by shutting down. The disorder actually ranks number one on the McGill Pain Index. That's an index that is used in the medical community and it commonly measures the amount of physical suffering that a patient is going through. Well, CRPS is also nicknamed the suicide disease because those who have the disease rarely receive relief from the symptoms and they might eventually end their life. Well, Dr. Kirkpatrick recommended a treatment plan that included low doses of ketamine to treat Maya's symptoms. Now, this was all new to Bieta, but it seems the family had reached a place where they were going to try anything to help their daughter, who at this point was just struggling to walk. They had experienced episodes where Maya couldn't even shower because the water droplets felt like knife blights on her skin. And sometimes the family would have to leave church because the clanging of the church bells would cause intense headaches and pain for Maya. Well, when the low doses weren't supplying Maya with enough relief, the doctor recommended that Bieta take Maya to Monterrey, Mexico, where it was legal to administer a much higher dosage of ketamine. Now, during that visit to Mexico, Maya was placed in a five-day coma while high doses were administered. After some recovery time, the treatment did appear to put Maya's symptoms in sort of a remission. She began playing with her brother Kyle again. She was swimming. She was regaining strength in her arms and legs. And working through physical therapy, she was on what appeared to be a journey back to health. Now, she was still taking doses of ketamine being administered by Bieta when she would have small flare-ups. Well, months later... In October of 2016, Bieta was at work and a hurricane was rolling into Florida and it's unclear if it was the stress of the night or if it was just completely random, but Maya had a massive relapse. It was so alarming to Jack, that's her father, it was so alarming to Jack that he transported her to the Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital Emergency Room in St. Petersburg, Florida. Bieta rushed to the hospital a few hours later when her shift at work ended, and she immediately jumped in to help with the care of 10-year-old Maya. Well, the next morning, Maya was admitted to the pediatric ICU. She was screaming and writhing in pain. No matter what the healthcare team did, Maya was experiencing zero relief. Bieta, who, remember, has kept detailed notes about her daughter's care, was trying to aid the team. She had informed them of the diagnosis of CRPS. She had told them about the ketamine coma. She had shared with them about how she receives ketamine doses for management of the illness. Well, as the pain became unbearable during an ultrasound, Bieta demanded that the team administer ketamine to Maya immediately. Now, the team was concerned about the usage of such a powerful drug on a young child, and they felt like a social worker should get involved in the case. Well, before we dive deeper into the story, I want to remain clear-eyed here. A social worker involved in an extended stay for a child is just not that weird. It's actually a really common practice in hospitals. I've experienced it. My youngest child was two and a half pounds at birth, and a social worker followed our care for the next two months in the newborn ICU. And even though we didn't really need her as a family, it was great having the resource there just in case something cropped up. So I don't feel like this is the red flag, but it might become a red flag. Okay, the social worker, after speaking with the healthcare team and with the family, well, she filed a formal notice with the state over concerns about Bieta demanding pain medications for her child and about her really kind of being uncooperative in the care. That filing led Florida's Department of Children and Families to evaluate the case. Well, in less than 24 hours, They discarded the filing, saying that there was a lack of evidence for an extended investigation. And here is where it shifts, because the nurses just didn't let it go. On their own volition, a nurse phoned Dr. Sally Smith. Now, she's the medical director for the child protection team in Pinellas County. Dr. Smith logged into Maya's electronic file and read all of the patient's information. Dr. Smith was nearly godlike when it came to abuse cases, hospital personnel would almost always defer to her expertise and recommendations. And Dr. Smith discovered that the hospital personnel found Bieta pushy and aggressive. She read about the ketamine dosages, and she was told that Maya would not squirm, shake, or cry as much if her mother was not in the room. Well, this got the ball rolling. A second formal report was filed by the social worker the next day. But this report had a different focus. The first complaint highlighted a concern of parental neglect. This new report said the exact opposite, that Maya was being overtreated. The report said that they believed Bieta had mental issues. And it also said Maya was not actually in pain, that it was Bieta that was insisting she was in pain. Family services then formally asked Dr. Smith to manage the case, and she quickly decided that Bietta was doctor shopping, just taking Maya to anyone who would listen to Bietta's demands. She came to the conclusion that Maya was a victim of Munchausen syndrome by proxy, that she was deliberately making her child ill in order to gain sympathy or gratitude for the difficult situation that she was in. Well, all of this had Jack and Bieta edgy. Two days after Dr. Smith began her investigation, the parents asked for Maya to be discharged from All Children's Hospital. Staff and Dr. Smith were firm with the parents, saying if they left, it would be against medical advice and that they would most likely be arrested if they did so. Okay, I just need to point out here, that's just not true. The staff misled the Kowalskis. They could leave with Maya if they wanted to. Now, CPS would have immediately become involved, but they still could have left. And there was no assurance that they would be arrested, but CPS would probably start an investigation, and then maybe an arrest would happen. And then after researching, it's probably accurate that Jack and Bieta should be edgy. Dr. Smith had a reputation for handling her investigations aggressively. Children in Pinellas County were being removed from their homes and away from their parents at one of the highest rates in Florida. Dr. Smith claimed this was because she was doing a more thorough and higher quality job than her counterparts in the state. Well, the next day, Bieta was at work, and Jack was tending to Maya at her bedside. And Dr. Smith's investigation had led the state to issue a shelter order. When the nurse came into the room to demand that Jack leave, He was on his hands and knees cleaning feces off the floor. Maya had lost control of her bowels and had had an accident that Jack was lovingly taking care of. Now the nurse abruptly said to Jack, you need to leave now. Your daughter is in state custody. So I had a gnawing feeling while researching this case. Did Dr. Smith even consult with Maya's previous doctors during the investigation? Bieta might be aggressive, and the small language barrier might make her appear maybe a little shrill and rude. Okay, but she wasn't the one who brought the diagnosis to the doctor. She wasn't the one who suggested the ketamine. It was Dr. Kirkpatrick and his colleague, Dr. Hannah, who seconded Dr. Kirkpatrick's opinion and treatment plan. In fact, Dr. Hanna had taken over the treatment because the Kowalski's insurance could be used in Dr. Hanna's practice. So the answer to my non question is yes, they spoke with each other. And the doctors both told Dr. Smith that separating the parents from the child could result in permanent damage to Maya. But, and it's a big but, Dr. Smith didn't include the consultations with Maya's doctors in her final report to the state. Instead, she insisted that the Kowalskis were harming Maya and that she needed protected from them. So you would think, if Dr. Smith was accurate in this diagnosis of Munchausen by proxy, that Maya would dramatically improve if her parents were prevented from seeing the child. So, the staff began secretly recording Maya in her room in those next few weeks after her parents could not come visit her. And over those next few weeks her condition didn't improve. In fact, she lost more weight and she cried often due to the pain. However, staff reported that at times Maya would use her feet to propel herself in her wheelchair. So the staff is now looking at it from a different angle. They came to a determination that maybe Maya was the one perpetrating the charade, that she was just making it all up the hospital actually changed directions. They removed the Munchausen by proxy concept and in turn labeled Maya as perpetrating a fictitious disorder. So I wanna point out something here. Dr. Smith works for a private organization. She's not employed by All Children's Hospital. So this can be confusing to some patients because she'll sometimes wear a doctor's white coat and have an All Children's Hospital badge hanging from her lapel. And parents might wrongly assume that she's part of the medical care team, and they might also wrongly assume that the information they share with her is kept confidential. Now, with that knowledge, understand that Dr. Smith's team removes children from their parents for suspected child abuse at a rate two and a half times higher than the state average. I also want to point out that even when All Children's Hospital accepted Dr. Smith's finding that Maya was. Faking her condition. They said she was going so far as to like scratching her hands and making those strange bumps and lesions on her legs and arms and forehead and saying they were all self inflicted. Well, with all of that, they did not alter her custody status and she remained separated from her parents. Now, you got to remember, that was a lucrative option for the hospital. In the months that Maya was forced to remain there, All Children's billed her insurer more than $650,000 for her treatments. This billing included 174 entries for CRPS, the malady Maya supposedly didn't have, according to the new report. Yeah, you heard me right. They said she didn't have CRPS, but they billed her for it anyway. Well, eventually, after several weeks, Jack was allowed back into the hospital room, but Bieta was not, and conversations between Bieta and Maya were strictly monitored and recorded. The staff was, in my opinion, annoyed with Bieta. They would often decline her phone calls or abruptly end the call for whatever reason, and for Bieta, this seemed really frivolous. And all children's hospital went so far as to ending visitation rights for the private school tutor that the Kowalskis were paying for, and they even ended the visitation rights for the family's priest. Well, Christmas came and went, and Bieta was not allowed to see her daughter. Now, during all of this, Bieta offered to move out of the home if Maya could return and live with her brother and father. Now, the courts didn't accept that as an option either. It seemed the system had decided Bieta was not going to ever see her child. All right, are you ready for this part? In January of 2017, three months into Maya's stay in the hospital, staff entered Maya's room and told her to strip to her sports bra and underwear. They intended to take pictures of her nearly naked body. Maya refused. Maya claims that the nurse physically held her down while another member of the care team removed her pants and shirt, all while Maya was screaming, no, no. Then immediately after this episode, and are we going to call it an episode? Wait, hold on. I'm going to pause the story here. I just have to say, I would be furious as a mother if I knew this had happened to my child. I'm pretty angry just retelling it to you guys. I don't even know how they went on past this. But going back to the story, immediately after the encounter, Maya's uncle picked her up from the hospital to transport her to a courtroom for a hearing about custody. It was the first time Maya had left the hospital since October. She had missed Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas, and her 11th birthday during those three months. Now, while at the courthouse, she asked for two things. She wanted to speak with the judge and she wanted to hug her mother. Both of those things were denied. The judge claimed the status between Maya and her parents was uncertain. So he could not grant the child's request to hug her mother. Now, according to the cut, Beata and Jack Kowalski returned to their Venice home. Beata was listless, and she just could not stop crying. And Jack was terribly worried about how much weight Maya had shed, and especially at how pale she looked during the court hearing. Once at their house, Bietta picked up her car keys and told Jack she was going to CVS. She didn't return until after midnight. When she finally stumbled in, Jack was startled. It was the first time in 13 years of marriage he had ever seen his wife drunk. Well, the next day, following a very poor night's sleep, Kyle, Jack, and Bieta were supposed to attend a birthday celebration in the neighborhood, but Bieta wasn't up for it. She said she had a headache and she was just too tired from the difficult experience the day before. When Kyle and Jack returned from the birthday celebration, Kyle's bedroom door was shut and Jack just figured Bieta was asleep in the room. She often did this. She would find comfort in at least touching something of one of her children's since she hadn't touched Maya for months. Well, Kyle respected his mother's behavior and he fell asleep on the couch. The next morning, Maya's uncle came to the home early. He went to the garage to retrieve something. There, he screamed Jack's name, but with the Polish pronunciation. And then Jack knew. He knew by the tone, by the volume, by the pronunciation, that it was horrible. He held Kyle back and called 911. Bieta was hanging lifeless from the garage rafters. She had left a note that read, I'm sorry, but I can no longer take the pain being away from Maya and being treated like a criminal. I cannot watch my daughter suffer in pain and keep getting worse while my hands are tied by the state of Florida and the judge. Now, can you even imagine Jack having to go to the hospital and tell Maya what had happened? And poor Kyle, his world has been dominated by this illness as well. And now this tragedy of losing his mother was overwhelming for his life. Now, when Jack arrived at the hospital with Kyle and their family priest, he was allowed to tell Maya and spend about an hour with her while they all cried together. He was then forced to leave the hospital. Now, this nightmare for the family isn't even close to being over. Following Bieta's death, Jack had another family court hearing where all children's hospital attorneys argued that Maya needed to be placed in a long term inpatient medical foster care. Now, during the hearing, the judge silently read a note that Bieta had left for him when she completed suicide. Bieta had written that the judge had a heart that was an iceberg. And then she claimed the hospital had destroyed her daughter physically and mentally. After reading the note, the judge ruled that Jack could take Maya to a doctor in Rhode Island who was a professor at Brown Medical University. Now that doctor, he studies CRPS and the judge wanted a non-biased opinion about Maya's potential condition. So what did that doctor find? He said Maya's symptoms and response to treatments were consistent with CRPS and that the diagnosis of Munchausen by proxy and also the diagnosis of factitious disorder, remember there were two, he said both were incorrect. The judge then allowed Maya to return to her home with Jack and Kyle. Over the next 12 months, Maya slowly gained weight and she also began using crutches instead of a wheelchair. She got back to swimming and playing the piano. And a year after her mother died, she took her first unassisted steps in four years. Now, several problems arose here, which led Jack to file a civil lawsuit against Dr. Smith and Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital. So one specific thing, Dr. Smith should have never accessed Maya's confidential electronic hospital record. That would violate HIPAA laws. On the day she opened those files, there was no active State of Florida investigation. Jack's lawyers then went on to claim that Maya was falsely imprisoned. The lawsuit also alleged battery for some of her treatment at the hospital, like the time they removed her clothes and took pictures and held her down, and then other instances where they purposely touched her skin and moved her limbs, causing intense pain for Maya. And the suit also claimed that the plaintiff's had responsibility, and Bieta taking her own life. Well, it took years for the civil trial to reach a courtroom. And at times, Jack and Maya and Kyle, they were all actively involved in the case. Well, they thought that it might never happen. But in September of this year, the civil trial began in front of a six-person jury in Florida. And after nine weeks of testimony, and you guys, nine weeks is so long in a civil trial, But after nine weeks of testimony, the jury deliberated for 16 and a half hours and then unanimously found that Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital was liable for incidents leading up to the death of Beata Kowalski. The jury determined the hospital should pay the Kowalski family over $210 million for the losses they endured. As the verdicts were read, Maya and Kyle held each other sobbing in the courtroom with Maya gripping her mom's rosary beads. The jury then awarded another $50 million in punitive damages. The nearly $261 million that was awarded was more than the Kowalskis were asking for. Now, the trial really came down to massive amounts of expert testimony. The Kowalskis' attorneys detailed CRPS And they called doctors to the witness stand who had treated Maya to deliver their testimony about the pain that she endured and also how the ketamine treatments were actually working. Well, the defense countered with their own expert witnesses saying that Maya did not suffer from CRPS. And their experts criticized the doctors who had treated Maya with ketamine. They claimed Maya was dependent on the drug. And that's actually why she was treated for months at the hospital. The defense also went after Beata, saying hospital staff thought she was mentally ill and that she exaggerated Maya's illness. Well, in the last weeks of the trial, the defense also submitted evidence that targeted Maya. They showed photos from Maya's friend's Instagram account of Maya attending her high school homecoming dance. They felt this showed Maya wasn't ever really sick and that she currently doesn't have CRPS. They implied if she did have the disease, she wouldn't be able to attend a dance. Well, Maya was called as a rebuttal witness where she criticized the hospital's attorneys for trying to dig up dirt on her in such an intrusive way. She said she only went to the dance in an effort to not disappoint her boyfriend who had bought tickets. And she also said she only stayed at the dance for about an hour. She said her symptoms flare and then they subside and that she absolutely does not live pain-free. Also, I think you should understand that Maya gets really passionate on the stand during this trial. And it's clear that she has her mother's genetics. And this is probably questionable for some people. I'm not sure it bothers me. But I could see how the staff might infer some of what they did was because of Maya's behavior. Well, throughout the last six years and throughout the trial... The hospital has insisted that it had done nothing wrong. In fact, defense attorneys claimed that the hospital practiced safe, evidence-based medicine and that their efforts actually saved Maya's life. Well, following the verdict, Maya told News Nation that it just felt really nice to finally have an answer to the court case. She said no amount of money will ever replace her mom, but that the family was just happy to have their prayers answered. She also said her mother was the type of person that when she knew she was right, she was going to prove it. She said that her mother wasn't there to carry it out, but instead that she, her brother, and her father carried it out for Beata. Now, her attorney said the hospital, although they had the ability to report child abuse once Maya was in their custody... He said the hospital failed to protect her from inside abusers, and there were social workers in particular that took advantage of Maya's vulnerability. He also said the hospital decided that her disease was a charade, and that they told her that her mother had a mental illness. And they also interfered with phone calls, and he said they did everything they could to victimize this girl inside of the hospital over those three months. Now I think it's a foregone conclusion that the hospital will appeal the jury's decision. But what about Dr. Smith? Well, her and the private company that she works for settled their portion of the lawsuit with the Kowalskis earlier for $2.5 million. But it seems Dr. Smith has little to no regret for the care that Maya received. The cut highlighted 12 cases where Dr. Smith had identified abuse but then the claims of abuse were found to be false and the children were returned to their parents. Okay, you've got to remember, it's unclear how many other cases where parents didn't have financial means to fight the claims, if those cases would have added to the total and there would possibly be more than 12 cases. But Dr. Smith says she had evaluated over 3,000 cases in her career. She said, She felt 12 cases out of 3,000 was a pretty small percentage. Now, the Cut article stated that in their interview with Dr. Smith, she maintained an unshakable conviction that she had never erred. She said she, to her knowledge, doesn't have any cases where she had reached an incorrect conclusion. She felt in those 12 overturned cases that child abuse had still occurred It just hadn't reached a level that it could be proven. Well, Dr. Smith retired before the civil trial reached a courtroom. And she said when asked about the toll that her career had taken on her, that she wasn't a horrible person whose life goal it is to disrupt families. She said she had chosen to retire because due to the biased news coverage, she had received threats by phone and social media to kill her and also burn down her home. So you guys... We got to stay clear here, I'm really bothered by this story, but those threats, if accurately portrayed by Dr. Smith, should never have happened. Now, since this jury verdict last week, Maya Kowalski has filed a new criminal complaint with the Pinellas County Sheriff's Department. The sexual abuse complaint cites that Maya was assaulted and battered at the All Children's Hospital specifically on the dates of October 8th and October 13th. Now, these were among the very first dates of her three-month hospital stay. The complaint states that a member of the hospital staff would kiss Maya while having her sit on her lap. The suit also claims that a male member of the staff entered her room and pulled down Maya's pants. It states that he then touched her private areas. Attorneys for the hospital emailed this response to the New York Post about the new lawsuit. They said, These allegations originally arose during the civil trial and were not admitted into the case. As soon as the hospital became aware of the allegations and in accordance with their policies, they immediately initiated an internal investigation and contacted law enforcement last month. Federal privacy laws restrict Johns Hopkins All Children's Hospital from sharing anything more. But the hospital takes allegations of this nature very seriously and always puts the safety of their patients above all else. All right, you guys, I said earlier that this might be the last chapter of Bieta's story. It's obviously not the last chapter of Maya's. This will take months, if not years, to come to completion. I'll be following the new lawsuit and also the appeals process for the recently settled civil lawsuit. And I'll let you know more when I know more. Well, that's your Monday episode of Rise and Crime. You guys, thanks so much for joining the Rise and Crime community. Please remember, Rise and Crime is also available ad-free on Apple subscriptions and Patreon. And if you know someone who would love this podcast, please share it with them. Join me again on Thursday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there. This
0: is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently